All right, open your Bibles up to John uh, chapter 12. John chapter 12. We're continuing our series in the book of John. Uh, If you have one of our Bibles, it's on page 955. Last week, we looked at the first 19 verses of uh, chapter 12. We're going to finish it up this morning, looking at uh, verses uh, 20 through 50. You may remember from our overview when we began John's gospel uh, that, that John divides his gospel into two main parts, right? Many Bible scholars and teachers look at this first part and they label it as the, as the book of signs because this is where it focuses on the signs that Jesus performed in order to reveal his identity as the Messiah. And then the second part, which will be beginning next week and, and, con- and continuing on through the end of John's gospel, is known as the book of glory because it focuses on Jesus' death and his resurrection and his exaltation, his return to the Father, and constantly then equates these things with uh, the glorification of Jesus Christ. So we're going to begin the, the book of glory next week, like I said. But as we wrap up chapter 12 today, the book of signs comes to a close, and so does Jesus' public ministry. And as it does, Jesus himself will draw this clear division between those who truly believe in him and those who don't believe in him. And we need to pay attention to his words this morning because what we do with what we hear today leads either to our glorification with Christ or to our judgment without him. And so, because this is the word of the Lord, and I am a fallible man who needs this just as much as I preach this, I want to pray and ask the Lord to help. Father, we thank you for your word We thank you for your written word that guides us into the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, your living word, and we thank you for your spirit who lives in every believer to help us understand the mystery that you have given to us here, to reveal that mystery to us in Jesus Christ in all his glory. And I pray that this morning as your word is preached and as your spirit works together, that you would open blind blind eyes, that you would open deaf ears, that you would raise dead hearts to life, and, and that, that we might believe together as John calls us to do so over and over and over again in his gospel. All for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. It's time. We've all heard those words before, right? We've all said those words before. Sometimes they speak of joyful things like, I have four kids, and I remember uh, as, as my wife was pregnant, get ready to go into labor with each one of them, uh, there, there was a time that came, she'd look at me and said, it's time, right? We're heading to the hospital right now. We got a boogie, right? We, we need to go. Or, or uh, maybe you've heard like the kids like in the room, you've heard your parents say, hey, it's time for vacation, right? Joyful things come with the, those words, but also sorrowful things can come with those words, Right? It's time to say goodbye. It's time to let go. It's time to be done, right? In our passage this morning, we're going to hear Jesus say, it's time. Only he's going to put it this way. The hour has come. The hour has come. And and with those words, he will speak of the most sorrowful event in human history that also leads to to our deepest joy if we believe in him. And as we hear what he has to say in this passage today, we will see then 
that the hour has come for all of us. And here's our main point for this morning that we'll see from our passage. The hour has come for you to believe in Jesus because the hour came for Jesus to be glorified. The hour has come for you to believe in Jesus because the hour came for Jesus to be glorified. John chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 20 with the entrance of the Greeks. Look at verse 20. Now some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival. So they came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and requested of him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. What a great thing to say, right? Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Andrew, every time we see Andrew in the gospel, he's always bringing somebody to Christ. Don't you love that? If you remember from last week, we ended in verse 19 with the Pharisees angrily yelling at each other. They're gathering around. They're super frustrated because all these people are leaving and going, uh, leaving them and following Christ, and they, they yell at each other. They say, listen, see what you've done? You haven't accomplished anything, right? Look, the whole world is going after him, they said. It's no coincidence that in the very next verse, here in verse 20, John mentions the arrival of the Greeks. Now, when he says Greeks, he's not just talking about people who came from Greece. He's not talking about Greek-speaking Jews. He's, he's using this as a term for Gentiles in general who come from all over the Greek-speaking world. It would be, it would be like uh, saying uh, English speakers today, right? People come from all over the place. They speak English. That doesn't mean they're from America. These were non-Jews who feared God and who came, for, uh, came to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. John doesn't elaborate uh, on, on why they came to Philip. It's possible that it's, uh, that be, it's because Philip's uh, name is Greek. It's possible that it, it's because he lived in Bethsaida where uh, it was home to not only Jews but a whole bunch of Gentiles as well. He, maybe he was a, a, just a good contact for them in that way. Whatever the reason, though, these Greeks came to Philip, who then went to Andrew, and then they both went to Jesus together to petition that he see these Greeks, or that the Greeks see him. Now, when they say that we want to see Jesus, they didn't, they didn't come to see him perform a sign as so many up until this point have done, right? They hear about what Jesus has done, they come and they're like, let's see, let's see for ourselves. In the original language here, that word see actually means more of of, of converse with. You see, they actually want to know what Jesus has to say. To them, that's more important. And Jesus, or John doesn't tell us whether or not the Greeks were able to have that conversation with Jesus, but he does let us in on what Jesus said to Philip and Andrew after they went and told him about the Greeks. Look at verse 23. Jesus replied to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The arrival of the Greeks, these Gentiles from all over the Greek-speaking world, the arrival of the Greeks signaled the arrival of the hour. It's time, Jesus said. 
Up until this point in John's gospel, whenever Jesus or John spoke about this hour, it was always in the future, right? You remember the phrases that we've heard so far? Uh, but his hour had not yet come. His time had not yet fully arrived. No more will we hear those words. From now on, it is the hour has come. The hour has come. And it starts here in verse 23. It was time for Jesus to be glorified through his crucifixion and his resurrection and his exaltation. And then after he said this to Philip and Andrew, he gave them an illustration and then an application and then an affirmation. First, the illustration. Look at verse 24. I love how he used something that would be familiar with his people who lived in an agricultural society. It's something that we're familiar with, right? Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Jesus didn't come to just do his own thing and then go back to the Father. He didn't come to remain by himself. He came to die so that through his death would come a great harvest of eternal life. Now, we just need to pause right here and reflect on the reality that we as believers 2,000 years later, are part of this fruit that he was just talking about. Isn't that incredible? Planting season is right around the corner for us. When, when our farmers go out into the field and they plant the seed, they do so in the hope that it will produce a good crop come fall, right? We need to understand something here. Jesus did not die in the hope that it would produce a good crop. Jesus died so that the fruit that would come was guaranteed. It was guaranteed, and we are living proof of that guarantee. We ought to take great comfort then in it as we are now laborers who plant seeds of the gospel in the lives of those around us. We ought to sow the seed of the gospel generously. Why? Because we're confident that the harvest is plentiful. Why? Because Jesus said so, right? Why is it plentiful? Because a death took place in order to produce much fruit. Next is the application in verse 25 and the first part of verse 26. The one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Jesus isn't the only one who must die. Anyone who claims to believe in him must die with him. If you love your life more than you love God, then you will ultimately lose what you love the most. This is what Jesus is telling us. If you live for yourself and for the fading glories of this present world, then you will be denied the eternal glories in the world to come. If you try to secure your life for yourself, it will only bring you to eternal ruin. But, but, if you hate your life in this world. In other words, you don't go around walking like, like my life is miserable, I'm worth nothing. No, no, no. If you don't live for yourself, but instead you live in loving service to Jesus Christ as you trust him to secure your life, then you will receive exactly what you've trusted him for, eternal life. We must die 
to ourselves and to the world in order for Christ to live in us. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Galatians 2.20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live in the body. I, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, we no longer live for ourselves, but for the one who died and, and was raised for our sake. If we're going to serve Jesus, then we must follow Jesus. These are his words, right? Where was the first place that Jesus went? To the cross. If we don't follow him there so that we can die, or, or we, we actually, we don't follow him there so that we can die for our sin. Only Jesus could do that. Why do we follow him to the cross then? We follow him to the cross so that we can die to our sin and live for him, that we can die to the world and live for him. And we can do that because of the affirmation that Jesus gives us in the rest of verse 26. He says, where I am, there my servant will also be. Again, not just a hopeful statement, but an, an actual promise, a guaranteed reality. Anyone who follows Jesus to the cross will also follow him to the resurrection and also follow him to the Father himself. And what does he say? If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. All who live right now by faith in the Son of God will be honored by the Father in the eternity to come. We who share in Christ's sufferings will also share in his glory. Paul tells us this in Romans 8. Because where he is, there we will also be. This is the promise that fuels our perseverance. Yeah, this life is hard, right? I don't think I have to convince anybody of that takes more convincing in what Jesus just promised to us, doesn't it? But it's actually a greater reality than, than the difficulty of this life. If you've been crucified with Christ, then your hardships have an expiration date. Do you know that? They won't last forever. Praise God for that, right? The hour of our glory is coming because the hour of Christ's glory has already come, and it's coming again because he's coming again. But as much as we understand the anguish of the hardships that we face now, Jesus understood even more so the agony of the cross that he was about to face. Look at verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd standing there heard it, and they said it was thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus responded, this voice came not for me, meaning not only for me, but for you. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. And then the crowd replied to him, we've heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Jesus answered. Don't you love how Jesus never, like, directly answers the question, but he gives an illustration to make the point. The light will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have the light 
so that darkness doesn't overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become children of light. Jesus said this, then went away and hid from them. Now, John may not record the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane like the other gospel writers do, but by no means does he treat the cross flippantly as if it were merely some, some speed bump on the, the, the journey home to the Father for Jesus. Just because Christ's suffering wouldn't last, that doesn't mean that he didn't actually suffer and suffer terribly. That word troubled in verse 27 is the same Greek word we saw in chapter 11 that John used to describe how Jesus felt when he saw Mary and, and, and the Jews weeping at Lazarus's tomb. It was deep anguish. He's, he, he's in distress here. His soul is in turmoil as he anticipated the cross because he knew what it would entail. Not only would he suffer excruciating humiliation and death at the hands of sinners, but he would also suffer the full weight of his father's righteous wrath in the place of sinners. And we need to know that just because Jesus is God, that doesn't mean that the cross was easier for him to handle. He's fully God and he's fully man, and he fully suffered. He fully suffered. In fact, his suffering on the cross is unmatched, and it always will be. He went further in obedience to God than any one of us has ever gone. Paul says, even to death on a cross. His suffering and death were the result of our total disobedience to the Father and his total obedience to the Father. His anguished words here echo his anguished words in the Garden of Gethsemane. Can you hear it? Father, save me from this hour. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But that's not why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name, yet not as I will, but as you will. Right? There are only three places in the Gospels where God the Father spoke audibly. One is at Jesus' baptism, one's at his transfiguration, and one is right here. And in all three instances, the Father was giving approval to the Son. Here, God the Father was saying that he glorified his name already through Christ's incarnation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory as the one and only Son of God. And that the Father would glorify his name again through Christ's crucifixion and resurrection in exaltation. This voice came from heaven not only to give approval to the work that Christ had already done and the work that he was about to do, but Jesus said that the voice also came for those that were standing there. And even though most of them were confused, right? They're like, "What? that's thunder. No, it's an angel. Nobody had any, any clue, right? Those standing there were among, uh, or among those standing there were, were some of his disciples, John, over and over in his gospel, what does he tell us about the disciples? After Jesus was raised from the dead, they remembered, right? They remembered what he said. Jesus is saying, hey, this is for you. Remember this. Why do they need to remember it? Because after the crucifixion and the resurrection, they will realize that Jesus' death was not his own defeat, which they will immediately think when he's put in the tomb. 
but the defeat of, his, uh, of this evil world and of the evil one who ruled it. The hour has come not only for the Son of Man to be glorified, but now, Jesus says, is the time uh, for the judgment of the world and for the ruler of it to be cast out. Christ's crucifixion would serve as the inauguration of the final judgment. Not all of it happened right then and there, but it, it's it, like the, the clock's ticking now, right? His death on the cross became a warning to the whole world because it revealed God's righteous wrath against sin. At the cross, the world thought that it was passing judgment on Jesus, and the reality is that his death exposed the depth of humanity's darkened hearts and evil deeds. Christ's crucifixion is the pivot point in all of human history. Everything hinges right here at the cross. The cross leaves all of humanity with only two options, either salvation or judgment. That's it. There's no third option. There's no in-between. All who reject Jesus reject his sacrifice for sin and remain subject to eternal judgment on the last day. But listen, for all who entrust themselves to Jesus, his crucifixion was our final judgment on the last day. It's already happened for us as believers in Christ. John put it this way in chapter 3, verse 36. We've already heard this. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. But the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Again, I don't have to convince us that this world is broken. It's sinful. It's hard to live in. And in its present state, Satan remains the ruler of it, but his authority, just like our suffering, has a time limit. Why? Because God is the ultimate ruler of all things at all times. The only way Satan rules is because God is allowing him to do that for, for now. And there's a time coming when the Lord of lords and the king of kings will subject every rebellious authority to his righteous judgment on that final day. Until the final judgment, the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. John says this in one of his letters. And those who reject Christ continue to live according to the ways of this world and the evil one who rules it. Paul says it in Ephesians 2. They're living in their fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of their flesh and thoughts, and were by nature children under wrath. Remember when John told the Pharisees, your father is the devil? When, when Jesus told the Pharisees that? Listen, we all live this way. Nobody is, is exempt from this. This is how we all lived. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he has for us, made us alive in Christ, with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins. We are saved by grace, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, because Jesus gave himself up as our substitute on the cross. All of our guilt was placed on him, and he endured the wrath of God so that we will never have to, never have to, never have to. When Christ bore our punishment on the cross, the ruler of this world was cast out of the heavenly courtroom for good. You know what that means? It means the accuser can no longer accuse us. Why? 
because John tells us in Revelation that we've overcome him by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. You see, our plea is Christ himself. Our plea is Christ himself. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. In Christ, believer, do you know this? In Christ, you have the freedom, the freedom to say, yeah, I was guilty, but no more. No more. Because Jesus has clothed me in his own righteousness, and those clothes never wear out. Salvation and judgment for all people hinges at the cross. What will it be for you? Will you be saved? Or will you be judged? The question is answered based on what you do with Jesus Christ. He must be your plea. Will you believe in him or will you reject him? Only two options. There's no in-between. Jesus said in verse 32, if I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He didn't mean all people without exception. He meant all people without distinction. In other words, Jesus wasn't saying that every single human being will be saved in the end. We can't read John's gospel and all that Jesus has said in it up to this point and honestly come to that conclusion. Just a few verses, even in this passage that we've already read before this, Jesus said that the one who loves his life will lose it. That does not end well. It, you will lose it, and the, only the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You can't believe in Jesus without believing what Jesus says. When Jesus said that he would draw all people to himself, he meant that salvation was for more than just Jewish people. It was from, for people from every nation in the world without distinction. It's no coincidence that he said this after the Greeks came to see him. You see what John is setting up for us? Before the cross, these Greeks had to come to Christ through the Jews. Who'd they go to? Philip and Andrew, right? After the cross, they would be able to approach the Christ as freely as Philip and Andrew were able to. Now that we have this great high priest, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness that we might receive the grace that we need, right? That's why Jesus told the crowd while they have the light to walk while they have the light so that darkness doesn't overtake them, to believe in the light so that they may become children of light. Again, in Jesus' own words, there's an implication here. That is, until they believe in him, they remain children of darkness under the wrath of God. And then he went away and he hid from them. Why? It's weird, right? Believe in the light while you have the light, and then he hides. And he did that as a sign that he had nothing more to reveal. If they did not believe in him, the only thing they would end up seeing is judgment. And his lifting up on the cross, Jesus would be lifted up in a display of both God's glorious judgment and God's glorious grace at the cross. The Father not only glorified his name, but he also glorified the Son because Christ lifting up on the cross, his crucifixion, would lead then to his lifting up out of the grave, his resurrection, and his lifting up 
from this earth back to the heavens to the throne seated next to the Father, his exaltation, even in his humiliation on the cross, Jesus was exalted in glory for the whole world to see, Jew and Greek alike, Gentile alike. But many of his own people, the Jews, they missed it. You remember what John, how he began his gospel? He came to his own. And they did not believe in him. They did not know him. They did not recognize him. Look at verse 37. Even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. And this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet who said, Lord, who's believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is why they were unable to believe. Because Isaiah also said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke about him. Nevertheless, many did believe in him, even among the rulers. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him so that they would not be banned from the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. In this section, John essentially uh, is essentially closing the first half of his gospel by closing the book on the Jews. At least most of them. We'll see from now on, Jesus focuses on the 12. One author said that, that in these verses, John was posing this question. What more could Jesus have done to prove that he really was the long-awaited Messiah? Don't we have enough evidence already here by chapter 12 in John's gospel? Unbelief has plagued the people of Israel since God first brought them out of Egypt. Even though God had performed many signs, so many signs in their presence when he rescued them from slavery to the Egyptians, and even though God performed so many more signs by supplying them with bread and water to keep them alive as they wandered in the wilderness, the people still turned away from God in unbelief. They didn't trust him. They didn't trust him. And as he quotes Isaiah the prophet here, John says, same old, same old. Nothing has changed. Even though Jesus performed so many signs in their presence, the Jewish leaders who represented the nation of Israel in that day, they did not Believe him. And even though Jesus was the living water, even though he was the bread of life who came to deliver his people from slavery to sin and to sustain them with life and life abundant, they still rejected him. Just like their ancestors, these Jews had failed to see God's glory and believe. They had hardened hearts and blinded eyes. These verses, though, John is unashamedly holding in tension both the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God. In verse 37 and 38, they place, he places the guilt on the Jews for rejecting Jesus in spite of the reality that God spoke his message through the things that Jesus taught and revealed his arm through the signs that Jesus performed. But verses 39 and 40 say that they were unable to believe because God hardened their hearts and blinded their eyes. What's that all about? We need to understand here it is not that the Jews wanted to believe and God would not let them. What did Jesus say in John chapter 6? Anyone who comes to me I will never cast out, right? 
It's that these Jews refused to believe, and God kept them in their unbelief as an act of judgment. He tells Moses, I will have mercy on who I will have mercy. One author put it this way, God's judicial hardening is a holy condemnation of guilty people who are condemned to do and be what they themselves have chosen. You remember what Jesus told Nicodemus back in chapter 3, verse 18? He said, anyone who believes in him, being the, the son of man, Jesus, is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is what? Already condemned. Because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son. God sent Isaiah to an unbelieving people with a message that he knew they would reject. How'd you like to have that job? Two passages that, the, the, the two passages that John quotes here are from Isaiah chapter 53 and chapter 6, respectively. We don't have time to read those today, but I want to encourage you to go and, and do that this week. Let those, let, fill that out in your mind and heart. In chapter 6, Isaiah saw the glory of God, and in chapter 53, he spoke about the suffering servant who was going to come. Isaiah saw the pre-incarnate Christ, and then he spoke about Christ incarnate. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, and he spoke. But the people of Israel ignored what Isaiah had to say, and so did these Jewish leaders who, who missed the fulfillment of Isaiah's words in the person and work of Jesus Christ. John says, nevertheless, many did believe in Jesus, even among the rulers. A, a ruler is somebody who, who judges in the court. Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. But these rulers, John says, were afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue for believing in Jesus, and so they, they kept their faith quiet. In verse 43, John says they loved human praise more than praise from God. Now that stands in stark contrast to Jesus' words in verse 26, right? If anyone serves me, he must what? Follow me. Follow me. Where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. He'll receive praise from God. Are you really following Christ if you're chasing after the glory of men instead of the glory of God? Now, I'll be the first one to stand up here and say, I struggle with that fear of man. But Christ, and only Christ, is worthy of all the glory. The one who loves his life will lose it. These ones that John said believe, we, we've heard this before in John's gospel. When he says people believe, it usually turns out to be superficial faith. These ones who believe are in danger of losing because they're giving themselves over to the praise of men instead of the praise of God. In these last verses, Jesus left no room for superficial belief. Look at verse 44. Jesus cried out, the one who believes in me believes not in me, meaning not only in me, but in him who sent me. And the one who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and doesn't receive my sayings has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me 
has given me a command to say everything that I have said, I know that his command is eternal life. So the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Why? Jesus came to bring eternal life. The book of signs closes with a rehash of several important themes that we've heard from Jesus and John over and over again throughout the first half of his gospel. Here Jesus reiterated that he is one with the Father, right? We've seen that before, that he's the light that rescues people from darkness. We've seen that multiple times before, including again in this passage, and that he was initially sent into the world not as a judge but as a savior. But as Jesus spoke about these things, Jesus tied them all together with another crazy important theme, belief. Belief. Look at what he says. If you believe in him, you believe in the one who sent him, the Father. And then he says, only those who believe in the light are rescued from darkness. Salvation only comes to those who hear his words and keep them. What does that mean? To those who believe what Jesus has said. It's those who don't believe that will be judged. And what will judge them on the last day? The word that I have spoken, Jesus says. One commentator put it this way, the same message that proclaims life and forgiveness to the believer proclaims condemnation and wrath to the unbeliever. And this judgment on the world is now impending. Jesus came and spoke all that the Father commanded him to, and the Father's command is eternal life. The one who hears Christ's words and believes them will find eternal life in them. But the one who hears Christ's words and rejects them will be condemned by the very same words because to reject Christ is to reject the Father, and to reject the Father is to reject eternal life. Anybody ever been arrested in here? You don't have to raise your hand. Just seeing if you're still paying attention. Listen, we all know, we've seen, the, we've seen the cop shows, right? They put them in cuffs, and what do they do? They read them their Miranda rights. What are the first words they say? You have the right to remain silent. But what? Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. Listen, if you're in, you, you need to know this this morning. If you remember nothing else, you need to know this. If you continue to reject Jesus Christ, then these very words that he has spoken to you, that you have heard from his mouth today, will judge you on the last day. They will be used against you in the highest court when he comes as judge of all the earth. You can't afford to remain silent. Don't. Don't remain silent. Confess your need for the forgiveness that he purchased with his own blood on the cross. Don't remain in darkness. While you have the light of God's word, your word is a light to my feet, a lamp to my path. Believe in the light of the world. So that you will become a child of light. It's time. It's time. The hour has come for you to believe in Jesus 
because the hour came for Jesus to be glorified. His glory was revealed through his crucifixion and his resurrection and his exaltation when he came as Savior. And his glory will be revealed once more when he returns as judge. You can either love his glory or you can love your own, but you cannot love both. There's no middle ground. There's no third option. If you put your trust in him, you'll be glorified with him because he was judged for your sin and God will be glorified in your salvation. But if you don't put your trust in him, then the hour will come for you to be judged for your sin and God will be glorified in your judgment. Either way, God will be glorified. Don't be judged on the last day by the word that Christ has spoken. Why not be saved by it now? Believe. Believe. This is the command that Christ has given us. And this command, the Father's command, is eternal life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that makes it abundantly clear of our need for Jesus. And we thank you that your word does not just make our need known, but makes your provision known to us in him. Father, open our eyes, unstop our ears, enliven our hearts, that we might see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ and live. For those that believe, that we would continue in belief, that we would, we would persevere knowing that Christ, because of his death, has produced fruit that will last. And for those that don't believe, I pray today the hour has come for them to believe that they do not walk out of here in unbelief, rejecting the only hope, the only solution you've given to us. But like we who have recognized that our need is Jesus, I pray that you and your grace would help them recognize theirs as well. So that Christ is exalted, Christ is magnified, Christ is lifted up. We ask this in his glorious name. Amen.